Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello and welcome back to another episode of America's 360. I'm your host, John Wilson. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, the year 2021 marks the 30th anniversary of the Global 16 Days Campaign, an international movement to raise awareness about violence against women and inspire activism to address the global challenge. This year's theme is femicide from awareness to accountability. Femicide, the killing of a woman or a girl on the basis of her gender, has long plagued the Americas. In 2018, the Latin American region included five of the 12 countries with the highest rates of femicide in the world. In many countries across the region, social and economic insecurities created by the COVID-19 pandemic have exacerbated the situation, creating what some are calling a shadow pandemic of violence. As part of the Wilson Center's participation in the 16 Days campaign, our experts will discuss femicide across the Americas and the region's attempts to address this persistent and deadly problem. So let's bring in our roundtable. Please say hello to Latin American Program Director Cindy Arnson. Hey, John. Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gaudet. John, how are you? Mexico Institute Director Andrew Redman. Hey, John. Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands. Hello, bonjour, John. And say hello to the newest member of our team, Brazil Institute fellow Daniela Campel. Daniela, welcome. Thank you for joining us. So, you know, rookie hazing, Daniela, we're going to begin with you. But before we dive into our subject, uh, tell us about uh, what you're working on at the uh, at the Wilson Center. Hey, I'm uh, currently working on the project uh, about anti-China sentiment in Brazil, and I'm trying to understand the sources, the cultural, not only cultural, material sources of this um, negative views of China that have increased in the last uh, year or so. Uh, so I'm doing some work on Twitter sentiment. I'm doing some work on losers and winners from trade uh, with China. So that's a very uh, broad agenda that has to do with this relations between Brazil and China, given that China is the biggest market for Brazil, but yet mm-hmm. Uh, there's a very negative foreign policy right now going on uh, in Brazil against China. So that's the puzzle I'm trying to understand. Great. We look forward to working with you. And, and where is your professional home away from the Wilson Center? It's uh, at the Getulio Vargas Foundation in Rio. Great. Well, thank you. Welcome to the America's 360 team. We look forward to working with you. And, and, and returning to our, our focus on gender-based violence and femicide, talk to us a bit about the circumstance in Brazil Certainly, this isn't a problem that was created by the pandemic, but there's some evidence that it was made worse by the te- the pandemic. Can you talk to us about what's happening and what some of the factors are in the increase in violence? Yeah, I, I, I would start saying that violence against women is very uh, naturalized in Brazil, and it's mostly understood as a private matter. So to the point that not even women fully understand or recognize when they are experiencing gender-based violence. Uh, we had a turn uh, in the last years with the president of uh, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, who was uh, uh, when he was a legislator, was a person that said his fellow legislator 
uh, didn't have the right of being raped because she was too ugly for that. And of course, when there's a turn in the leadership of a country uh, that has already a culture of uh, uh, condescending with uh, this type of violence, I think that things turn uh, way more complicated. After the pandemic, things got much worse. And I think it's not a privilege of Brazil. That was a, a, a problem of, we had lockdowns in the beginning of the, the pandemic, not very strict lockdowns, but people were staying at home. Uh, and that made it very difficult for women to report. Not only that was an, a perception of increasing violence in terms of uh, women are uh, there with their uh, aggressors in a house and not being able to escape, but it becomes very hard to report violence in a situation like that. So they couldn't, women could not go to places where they would report violence and they couldn't call the places where they would report violence because the aggressor was right beside them. So this was a, a so in the beginning of the pandemic, the, the, what was observed was that there was an increase in the reporting of violence in Brazil, uh, even though, for example, feminicide increased uh, a, a little in the country and broadly in some areas of the country. So most probably what happens was that the violence was increasing, but reporting uh, was decreasing. I would say that overall, there is one issue in Brazil. Brazil has laws in place. We have law Maria da Penha against uh, domestic violence. There is a, a law against feminicide that was established in 2015. But there is a huge gap in enforcement and uh, institutional implementation uh, of these laws. Uh, there's poor data as well. We have very little, uh, limited information on, on violence. Um, so I would say that uh, in terms of uh, the, the, there is uh, some report that after the end of the lockdown, the lockdown, things got back to normality in terms of reporting. But still, we are very far from uh, having established uh, an implemented framework to, to protect women from, from domestic violence. Well, well, thank you. You raised so many uh, important themes that we're going to revisit here in, in just a moment, but um, want to get everyone into the conversation initially. And Chris, I want to turn to you and talk a bit about Canada in the sense that, you know, we're not just talking about women generally, but in some cases, in the case of Canada, uh, we're talking about a certain group of women that are disproportionately represented in these statistics about violence. And in the case of candidates, indigenous women, tell us about the circumstances. Well, in, indigenous women and girls actually um, are, are often the, both on the one hand, um, victims of violence within their own communities, but also between communities. There is a uh, there has been um, people who are indigenous who are raised in their community who then try to find work uh, on the you know in cities like Regina and Saskatoon, uh, where suddenly they struggle, they become homeless. And then they're even more vulnerable because they're outside that community that might provide them with protection. And there's been long standing issues between indigenous communities generally, not just women and girls, and the RCMP, Canada's National Police Force. And so the Trudeau government uh, made a really big uh, first step after Trudeau was elected in 2015 to establish a national inquiry on missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. And that inquiry, which concluded its, um, its work in June of 2019, came forward with 231 recommendations. Now, to be honest, the progress on implementing those is very uneven. But what was really important was the validation of the experience and 
that it was really coast to coast. There were problems in every one of Canada's provinces. There were problems with provincial officials and federal officials. And I think a bit like uh, the recent news that residential school children who were Indigenous, who had been put into schools so they could be mainstreamed for education, had ended up murdered. It was a shock to, I think, a lot of Canadians that this was going on not that far from where they lived and for where their kids were. And so that sense of shared responsibility has really been raised by the inquiry. But there's a lot of work to be done in this particular population. Thanks, Chris. Cindy, I'm going to ask you to to paint a broader picture across the region. You you look at other countries that have high rates like El Salvador and Honduras. But Danielle made the point, Daniela made the point uh, about data being unreliable. So when you try to get a grasp on what's happening, how reliable is that data? Let me step back to a first comment that you made, John, um, in terms of the the statistics overall in Latin America, it is one of the most violent regions in the world. Um, this has been the subject of numerous reports most uh, recently, um, well, not necessarily most recently, but a, a major report by the United Nations Development Program, um, which found that some high percentage of the 15 most violent cities in the world um, were in the Latin American region. Um, And as you mentioned, Honduras and El Salvador, while they don't have the highest numbers of femicides overall, have the highest rate per population. Um, And that's, um, you know, to a certain extent, not surprising. We know that uh, criminal violence is a driver of migration, that the gangs and and organized crime groups uh, are are extremely violent and have made that a very violent region. Um, but the the difficulty I think for a long time um, in getting a handle on or, or implementing policies to improve citizen security overall and protection of women is that data collection is really lousy, and some of it has to do um, with a lack of institutional. Um, strengthening of the of the statistics agencies that would look at this. Some of it has to do with the decentralization of police forces. Um, and uh, Andrew can talk a little bit more about that in Mexico and the multiple layers between state and, and federal and local. Um, and there aren't central repositories for gathering these statistics. So I note that, you know, um, according to the numbers, After uh, 2019, things got better in El Salvador in terms of femicides. And the question is, do you really trust it? Is there a political reason for not reporting numbers or are they just not collecting numbers? And I think it's true during the pandemic throughout the world, including in the United States, um, that during lockdowns, violence against women has gotten worse. And we should not expect the situation to be any different in Latin America, even though Latin America tends to be more violent than other regions in the world. Thanks, Cindy. Andrew, Cindy queued up some discussion of Mexico and the various layers of jurisdictions that come into play when attempting to deal with any crime. Uh, Tell us what the circumstance is there. Um, Yeah, thanks. Thanks, John. I mean, my colleagues have raised all kinds of really interesting points already. Femicides have gone up in in Mexico, as as was mentioned in in other countries as well. Um, interestingly, I don't know whether it's interesting, good or bad. The number of women killed has risen 
proportionally with the overall increase in homicide. So the, the percent of women as a share of total people murdered hasn't changed a lot. Um, but the, the amount has gone up. The, the raw number has gone up. And how they're investigated, which I think uh, Daniela talked about, you know, you have the laws, but then it's what you do with them. And the the number that is investigated does vary across states. And probably more research needs to be done to figure out exactly why. But there are a number of possibilities. There are different state laws. There are different capabilities among prosecutors. Different, you know, different prosecutors will focus on different issues. And and also different definitions, which I think also, you know, we've talked about that how you define what is a femicide leads to different numbers. So you get, um, you know, you get varying numbers of, of what's actually a femicide. So you combine all of that. And, and as was alluded to, it's really hard, I think, to to be sure of numbers, but it's pretty clear to see when when numbers are going up or down, even if you don't know exactly. Andrew, it's, I know it's difficult to generalize, but we saw Amnesty International critis, critical of the Mexican government for its uh, response to peaceful dem- demonstrations around uh, gender-based violence. Is there some general response you can talk to us about and why the government would react in that manner? You know, I think it, this is not the first time, if you recall back in March, there there were women's marches in Mexico and the National Palace was barricaded as if the women were a threat to the president. Um, I, I think what it stems down to, it, what it comes down to largely is that um, President Lopez Obrador has a really thin skin and he is very resistant to criticism of any type and tends to attribute criticism to to conservatives to people trying to undermine his government at the same time he ha- he himself has recognized there's an increase in femicides and there have been steps to try to address it so it's it's a little bit of a mixed bag but i, I think some of it is just a sort of gut reaction to to criticism Benjamin, I think, and I'm the guilty party as I'm leading the questioning, but, you know, there tends to be authority bias that comes into play. We're talking about what governments do. What can you tell us about what civil society is trying to do to address the problem? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Andrew, you know, had referenced the response of the Mexican authorities to the women's movement in Mexico. And obviously that was quite discouraging. But the fact of that rally itself, I think, was quite encouraging which is to say that, you know, the mobilization of Mexican women, I found quite inspiring. There was a national strike. Argentina is a really powerful example of that. And maybe a few years ahead, there's been a movement fighting um, gender-based violence called Ni Una Menos that has been spreading throughout the region, inspiring copycat groups in Chile and elsewhere, um, promoting these issues and with actually great uh, responses from the government in Argentina, particularly the current government, um, not only on data, though, including efforts at the Supreme Court and at the Ministry of Human Rights to have better information to be able to track what's happening, but also this the standing up of a cuerpo de abogadas y abogados para víctimas de violencia de género, which is a group of lawyers providing you know, free legal services who have been trained and have the expertise to be effective advocates. So, you know, I think it's important to say, you know, unfortunately, Argentina does suffer from this trend as other countries in the region do. And in fact, had a record number of femicides in 2019. You know, the pandemic imposed all sorts of disproportionate burdens on on Argentine women. But the civil society mobilization has not only been encouraging in terms of the direction of, of public policy, but it has generated really impressive responses from the government, some real structural changes, and hopefully we will see the results of that in, in new data in the future. 
I want to pose a question and then step back and let the five of you have at it, because I, I, there's something here that is emerging. At the risk of sounding glib, if you're looking for a common theme here, it's men, right? I mean, you're more likely to be attacked or killed by a man. It's more likely statistically that this is going to be a man you know, if not live with in the same home. Uh, but then, Danielle, you mentioned Danielle, you mentioned that Brazil, it's become normalized, and, and I think was the word you used, violence against women. And Cindy, you talked about uh, Latin America being uh, suffering from violence in a significant way. So I'm looking for what are the either the cultural or other structural uh, reasons that we're seeing this and that five of the top 12 in the world are in this region of the world? What can we understand as far as Every context is different. Every country is different. Every household is different. And yet there are common threads. And I guess one way to go about solving the problem is to identify the common threads and look for points of intervention. So what, what are your thoughts? Danielle, I know you were eager to say something. I was thinking about, we were talking about feminicide all the time, and I've been talking to some specialists in Brazil, and it seems that this is one indicator that's not necessarily the best one, first of all, because it's the uh, top of the iceberg, when when somebody's killed effectively, there's so many things that happen before a woman is killed by the husband or someone that she knows. That's the first one. The second is that the feminicides in Brazil are usually um, claimed to be feminicides when it's something very obvious. So in most of the cases, there are many cases, I just, uh, it reminds me that in Brazil, we had not much of an increase in feminicide during the pandemic, but we had an increase in homicides of women. So this is data that you have very little uh, num small numbers, let's put it this way. So there's a lot of volatility in this number. But going back to, to your question, I think that, that there's something very strong in terms of like cultural uh, perception of crime against women. And without recognizing or changing minds and, and making even women understand that they are uh, experiencing violence when they think that this is just a normal relationship, normal life. Uh, without that, even giving access to them, to reporting uh, this violence, I think it's uh, it's not going to be sufficient, right? So we need a change of mind, and a change of mind, including in the police, because policemen are Brazilian men that think this is natural too. So there's a lot of training to be done uh, with people that deal with uh, domestic violence in the in the country. Other thoughts, John? If I, if I can, I mean, one of the interesting things, and I think Brazil and uh, Canada probably share a bit of this, is that when when you're a victim of violence, it's understandable that you feel very isolated uh, among the people you're with. Who can you talk to? How can you talk to others? And Canada is such a big country that the reality of what happens in indigenous community in the north, it might as well be on Mars for someone who's living in downtown Toronto. And creating some solidarity between women in different circumstances who are experiencing violence, but where the causes and the, and the cultural frame of that uh, can be quite different is really hard. And I think that's what's held Canada back. Um, you know, Nova Scotia women don't always see Quebec women in the, as having the same problems. And yet, as a country, bringing everyone together and recognizing it is a universal problem, it's not isolated in a community, is a real challenge. And um, it's one thing that Canada struggle with, but I think it's a problem that a lot of other countries have as well. Cindy Arnson. Yeah, I think we have to also look across the region, maybe with the exception of some countries like uh, like Argentina, that the institutional response has been woefully inadequate. Uh, there have been laws. Sometimes the laws are upheld. Most of the time they're not. Uh, there are special jurisdictions for women to report uh, forms of domestic violence. 
Um, and they're not, there just aren't nearly enough of them. Uh, the training of the staff is not what it needs to be. I mean, just look at a case like El Salvador, where um, under a, uh, a law that was uh, passed in uh, or under uh, provisions of um, in passed in 2016, um, the government was trying to create these specialized courts to deal with violence against women and femicides. And, you know, uh, four or five years later, only six of these courts had been created in the whole country and then only in three departments. So unless you lived in those departments, you would not have access to that kind of uh, institutional response. So I think that, you know, um, there's lots to be done to make Latin America and the Caribbean overall less violent, uh, but this subset needs special attention. Benjamin Gaudet. Yeah, I agree entirely with Cindy. I think it needs special attention in part because the high rate of femicides is not simply a result of rule of law challenges in Latin America. You know, if it were, you could say we just need to address in general the high levels of insecurity that Cindy described earlier. I think, unfortunately, it reflects broader cultural challenges um, and power imbalances between genders in Latin America. Um, and until those are effectively addressed and women are given opportunities to be in, in you know, more frequently in positions of influence, um, I think we will continue to see inadequate public responses in much of the region or superficially encouraging responses, but very little implementation and too few resources. Culturally, politically, in terms of law enforcement, has it been useful to create a special crime femicide? It's sort of like hate crimes, right? It's not, it's, it's taking a crime murder, in this case, homicide, and giving it a special label. But then in some cases, that adds degrees of difficulty for prosecutors to try to prove that all of the standards have been met. Has this been a useful tool? Has it raised awareness? Has it had any uh, 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 discernible way of moving the needle in a positive direction? Yeah, I defer to my colleagues and their insights as well. What I would say is by identifying it as a special class, it forces a conversation about the scale of the problem. It forces a conversation about adequate monitoring and data, adequate training for folks in law enforcement, and also innovative resources for victims of this crime so that there are special hotlines, special access to justice. So I do think identifying it as a special type of crime gives it some potency and some urgency for all manner of policy responses. Yeah, it certainly focused our discussion, right? That's one example. Chris, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. And I think one of the things that is so important for law enforcement is to figure out what are the triggers, what drives this kind of thing. Some people say, mm-hmm. well, you know, the worst is matricide or, or patricide, but you only have one mom or dad. So you're not likely to repeat. But when you're dealing with violence against women, someone who commits that crime once against one woman may do it again. So if you don't identify that problem, that that, that is leading to the femicide, you, you think it's a one-off and then you never really get to the heart of the problem. So I think it's really important to have that designation because it goes to the cause, the motive that, that causes something like this to happen, which needs to be on record. So we're almost out of time. So a couple of quick comments before we close. With the case of Maria da Peña, what happens is, for example, in the now after the law was implemented, uh, you can, for example, speed up the process of separating uh, women from their aggressors uh, moving men out of the house. And this kind of process can, can be sped up, uh, speeded up by the fact that there is a law and there is some recognition that uh, aggression against women is not just aggression. Yeah. So in that sense, I think that was a, an evolution. Yeah, great point. So it doesn't just create hurdles to overcome. It creates uh, tools that you can apply. 
Any other final thoughts before we wrap? Okay, then we're going to leave it there. This was a terrific discussion. Thank you. There's, as, as in most big issues, there's lots more to discuss, but it's been really interesting to learn from all of you today, and we look forward to doing that in future episodes. Uh, before we close today, I want to thank our crack production team. Uh, this episode of America's 360 was produced by Oscar Cruz, Cecily Fasanella, and Zoe Reed, with the assistance of Barbara Chimati, Sam K. Jimenez, Harry Grandi, Manuela Jimenez, Nina Ellard, and Noah Silverman. Thanks to all of you. In addition to thanking our team, we want to thank you for listening, with the hope that you'll join us again soon for our next episode. Until then, for all of us at the Wilson Center and America's 360, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for your time and interest. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.